Have the Russians invaded? Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Crass Welcome Bov. to. Just like that. Yep. Falling on our faces right out the gate. Plop. As is our way. Sorry, Heidi. (laughs) Sorry, Heidi. So welcome to yet another exciting, riveting, compelling episode of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith, pastoral intern at Redeemer United Reformed Church in Anchorage, Alaska. And I'm Caleb Castro, a summer intern at Trinity United Reformed Church in Visalia, California. It's good to be with you again. By with you, I mean we recorded this probably a week or two before you heard it, and we've never seen or heard or talked to most of you. But it's still good to be with you. Yeah. Actually, I, you know, once in a while I bump into somebody and you listen to this show and offer nice words and always appreciate it when we get to do that. Get to hear from our listeners that you're enjoying this and this is helpful. So Yeah, someone will come up to me and say the same things. They'll, you know, they'll tell me they listen to the Bobcast and I tell them I'm so sorry. Yeah, I usually say something like that too. Or I'm just like <laughs> surprised like, oh yeah, I listen to Bobcast. Like, you do? <laughs> Why? <laughs> and for you, our faithful listeners, we ask the same question why yeah why why would you of all the things you could be doing you could be listening to i don't know reformed forum or whatever other of the hundreds of podcasts that come out anew every week literally anything else and yet you're here well andrew i have a why for you why are we here doing this episode today um i don't know have the russians invaded (laughs) What is this, 1980? Well, I mean, I am up in Alaska, and a certain prominent Alaskan once said that she could see Russia from her house, and, you know, now I'm here in Anchorage, and I can confirm, you cannot see Russia from here. It's still several hundred miles, maybe even thousands of miles away. Well, that's too bad. So what are we talking about today, Andrew? So over the last couple of episodes, we've started a new series on covenant theology. We've done just some introductory matters looking at why covenant theology matters and a brief survey of history of covenant theology. Today we're going to start actually diving into the substance of covenant theology, the elements of it, through the various covenants. And the first one that we are going to look at is an idea that's been somewhat controversial, somewhat disputed, the covenant of redemption. Ooh. Ominous music. That's all we can get with our music budget. <laughs> We don't want to get sued. Yeah. Also, if you need a little reminder for what a covenant is, we encourage you to go back and take a listen to the previous episode. We actually go through a little bit of a survey, historic up to present, on some helpful reform definitions of covenant and simplicity for just right here. And again, this is just generalizing. We can just consider covenant as something of an administration by legal agreement. It's usually ratified by rituals and 
has particular promises and curses that are involved in them. With that, you can perhaps anticipate, if you're familiar with the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, you can anticipate how a definition like that, involving legal agreement, promises and curses and rituals and such, how that fits with the three persons of the Trinity making a covenant with each other, which is the basic teaching of the covenant of redemption. And you could also perhaps start to anticipate some of the objections that might be raised because how can the three persons of the Trinity enter into a covenant in this way? Essentially, the doctrine of the covenant of redemption is that it is the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, covenant together to redeem a particular people. It ties into a lot of other important and core Reformed and Christian doctrines, but it also can get a little bit tricky and complicated. It is true. A lot of debate has gone on for several hundred years on this. You would even find like John Owen going and having certain contentions with how we might conceive of covenant, the term covenant for this eternal divine agreement between the Trinitarian persons. And like I said, there's still that question if modern definitions of a Reformed covenant do conceive of this contractual element with promises and curses, are the divine members of the Trinity also cursing themselves as much as they're making a promise? That seems a little hard to conceive. Now, I was doing a sermon recently on this, and this is very much oversimplifying it, but I spoke of the covenant of redemption as a working definition for my current series to be basically the eternal oath behind the plan of salvation. And I think that that's probably the most basic that we can just get. It's an eternal oath by God concerning his works in history for the salvation of his people. Right. And that is a very basic definition. But I think if you go back to our historical survey of covenant, perhaps one of the difficulties in definitions regarding covenant is that people try to define covenant generally and then specific covenants too narrowly. Right. So just because the definition is a little broad and general doesn't mean that it's bad because Sometimes to account for all the biblical evidence, we need to be a little broader and not so much in the minutia of it. Yeah, and I think maybe part of that is that we're trying to go and set forth this narrow definition when it's better suited simply being described. Perhaps to start, Andrew, do you want to give your kind of general description of the covenant of redemption before we get more into the particulars? Sure. So, one of the things before we begin, too, to recognize we are Bovcast, we like Bovink. So, Bovink sets forth kind of one of the classical, classical as in enduring and influential defenses of the covenant of redemption. He did that at a time and in a context where the doctrine of the covenant of redemption was under a lot of scrutiny and criticism and wasn't particularly popular. But basically the doctrine of the covenant of redemption broadly is that the father has covenanted with the son and with the Holy Spirit to redeem a particular people. So the father is the covenant administrator the son is the covenant mediator who fulfills the work and for that work receives a reward, which is a people and a kingdom. 
And then the Holy Spirit is enabling and empowering the Son's work as covenant mediator. Right. And so we've mentioned some of the part of the difficulty of the term covenant. Other words that people may prefer in it are simply the pact or a council of peace, divine oath. You'll get varying terms here, but these points of using the term covenant in how we talk about this plan of salvation in eternity becomes a bit of a place of disagreement with, say, us in the United Reformed Churches and, say, our brothers in the Canadian Reformed Churches or in the Protestant Reformed Churches and so on, as well as various other traditions. We'll come back to that in a bit, but I want to say that I think part of the rejection or opposition to the term covenant of redemption or even just to the concept of covenant of redemption comes from an issue in methodology. This difference in methodology arises because this doctrine of the covenant of redemption relates to a lot of other doctrines. It relates to the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's decree. What you think about the covenant may be influenced by whether you are supralapsarian or infralapsarian, which just to oversimplistically explain those, basically... The order, logically, of God's decree, did God choose to elect a particular people prior to his decree of the fall or subsequent to his decree of the fall, which has been one of the longest raging and intense debates of all Reformed theology that we're not going to take up in detail here. We aren't. I'm out. Are we? I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said a phrase there, this ordering of logic, and that, that's very important when we're considering uh, what systematic theology is. I mean, it is a systematic working through of various topics and subtopics of theology, and then seeing how they're interrelating with one another. What's highly important then is consistency. So when we're talking about a logical order of things, this is hard for us to grasp perhaps as people because we're bound by time. And so we're often thinking temporally when we're thinking of order of things. But logical order is not temporal order. It's the order that is essentially required by logic. When we're talking about the actions of God, particularly these intra-Trinitarian actions like the covenant of redemption, God is outside of, he transcends the very category of time. So when we say order, we're not talking about order in time. We're talking about order according to God's attributes and nature and so forth. And to that point, I mean, this is why methodology is so important. What we might call, you know, prolegomena. We want to have a, a kind of a set plan in laying out theology and understanding a theologian's argument, his flow of reasoning as we read through his works. And usually a volume of prolegomena will then be the first volume dealing with foundational subjects that then help set a course for how he's going to go through the rest of the subjects like the doctrines of God or the doctrines of man, the doctrine of Christ, and so on. And Bavink is no exception. If, for instance, if you read his Reformed Dogmatics, it's in four volumes, and the first is Prolegomena dealing with methodology, epistemology. Basically, how do we know what we know or if we know? And you can even see this in a smaller extent to what we've been going through in Wonderful Works of God. Where does he start there? He starts with Revelation. He starts with God as 
man's highest good and as the source of all knowledge. We can give something of a maybe a little illustration or describe the importance of this and the difficulty. So here we're talking about this covenant of redemption, this eternal plan to save man. Where do we place that in the system of theology? Is this a topic that is best addressed as part of the topic of election? Or is this something that's better talked about when dealing with the doctrine of Christ and Christ's work in salvation and his role as mediator? So if you're going to place it in theology proper, are you going to end up de-emphasizing the teachings of how this plan of salvation relates to Jesus Christ? What Andrew had said earlier was, by the time that we start to get even to the discussion of election, you know, we've already gone through the nature of faith and belief in scripture and truth. And then this is typically followed by a theology proper, where we talk about the attributes of God, the essence of God, and what makes him who he is. We then also talk about the doctrine of his triunity, his uh, one essence revealed in three persons. You know, this then will typically go into the doctrines of creation and providence. When we get to that point, there then tends to be a discussion on the election and the divine decree to save. It's tempting to jump the gun and start talking about the council of peace or covenant of redemption at that point before going into detail on who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, his eternal begottenness, his roles as a divine mediator between God and man. So, in other words, I'm just saying the temptation and issue with, I think, people's rejection to this covenant of redemption is because it gets handled prematurely instead of the proper place methodologically in the doctrine of Christ. And if you look at Bovink's approach to it, he doesn't get to the covenant of redemption explicitly until the third volume of his dogmatics, where he's dealing with sin and salvation in Christ is the title of the volume if you're reading the English edition. So by then he's already been through prolegomena, you know, the epistemology, the understanding of the foundations of our knowledge, and then the second volume where he deals with his doctrine of God, theology proper, and then his doctrines of creation and providence and so forth. So Bavink has done a lot of foundation building before he gets to the covenant of redemption within his theological system. We also note that, you know, this doesn't mean that the covenant of redemption can't be handled in theology proper, but that we just need to be cautious and aware of its strong connection and yet distinction in dealing with Christology. So it can be explained in theology proper, but the connections must properly be made in the system well interwoven. So methodologically, we want to consider the covenant of redemption in terms of its relationship between creation, providence, and salvation. God being sovereign, knowing all things, why would he create knowing man would fall? Why would he permit the fall? And then why would he providentially continue to permit man to continue living? That's because there has always been this plan of salvation. And the hinge of this relationship between creation, providence, and salvation is the doctrine of the decree. That's why the divine decree and uh, election is handled after talking about creation and providence. But we also need to keep in mind that there's a connection and distinction of the divine attributes and the economic trinity, what each person of the trinity does. 
in this plan of salvation. And I think we get a general picture of this. We want to point to just one text to start with is in John 17. So yeah, when we look at John 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's interesting because you see this interaction between the Father and the Son that begins to hint at this idea of a covenant between them, or at least some sort of plan made between them for the salvation. What's fascinating here is we're getting something of a small glimpse into the divine eternal counsel. This isn't to say that we can you know, truly know the mind of God and discern it. We can understand what is revealed to us about God through Christ. And again, this is why it's important, I think, to handle the covenant of redemption through Christology rather than theology proper. Theology proper, we run the risk of prying too much into the divine mind and to discern this eternal plan of salvation, whereas we need to look through the lens of Christ and who he is as the mediator and see what his role is and how we then understand this plan of salvation through him and his works. Another issue when we treat this as a matter of theology proper is we also run the risk of conflating God's being, so who God is ontologically, with God's work. More the ontological trinity and the economic trinity, God's being versus what God does. Mm -hmm. So for instance, as another example, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some would take that so far as to mean that there's actually being a division force between persons of the Trinity. And if we do that, then we have committed heresy against the ecumenical faith. The Trinity is inseparable. And yet, operationally, economically, in his redemptive work, Christ has become sin. Christ has taken the sin of the world on himself. And so, functionally, yes, there is a separation in that Christ is bearing this wrath of sin. And yet, it is not forcing a separation of the persons or division in the Trinity, because the Trinity is inseparable and is simple. So, looking at John 17, the high priestly prayer, I'm going to read through it and maybe offer some comments, and Caleb can jump in too. But we kind of see this counsel, this plan of redemption, and Jesus commenting on it. So, John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So we see already here several aspects that can point us towards this council of peace, this covenant of redemption. So the hour has come. Jesus acknowledging that the hour has come is an acknowledgement that this has been planned. This has been predetermined that this is going to happen, which this being Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. He's preparing to suffer the wrath of God against sin. But also, too, when you look there in verse 2, the purpose of it is to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the Father has given the Son a people. So this goes back to what we said at the beginning, this counsel to redeem a people for his name. And you also, at the same time, get the particular work in economic terms, the particular work of, so far, these two persons. But you also have 
their essential oneness. You have the ontological trinity here too, where he's praying to the Father, and yet he says, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. God shares glory with no one. So this is already an underscore that the Father and the Son are one as divine essence. They are one in deity. And you get this as you continue on in this prayer, verse 3 and following. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So there you have the aspect of the Father sending the Son, per the terms of this council, of this covenant. But then in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So again, there's the giving of the work. But then verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we see here, though, Christ's equality with God, Christ being in the beginning with God. And, you know, you could take this all the way back to the very beginning of John. Christ is the word who was in the beginning with God, but also the word who was God. So economically, Christ is taking on this servant role and fulfilling a work given by the Father, and yet in his being, you know, maintains his eternity and equality with the Father. Right, and this is, again, the theme, as you're saying, all the way back from the beginning of John. And here's where you have, you know, this true light coming into the world. John says from one eighteen, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So God does the revealing himself. And you go down to verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. So we're getting, again, these snippets already at the beginning of this eternal plan. This ties in also with John 3, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, when he asks, how can a man be born again. Jesus tells him in 3.5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again. And then down in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So there's already this, this intentionality at the beginning of Jesus' teachings here in John, this intentionality of what this plan is and the origin of this plan. The origin of the plan comes from God, in God's eternal, divine, imperfect will. With, as we're seeing in how Jesus addresses the Father in this prayer, the Father as the covenant head, as the, the covenant maker, and then Christ as the mediator, he's the one who's carrying out this plan. And he does this through uh, revealing the Father to those who were to be born of the Spirit and not of flesh. And you get this back in John seventeen six. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. And so then as we look at John 17, we see the Son carrying out this mediator role, something that was decreed from eternity and you know christ in his prayer makes reference to this eternity past or eternity outside of time and yet being carried out in time to save us from our sin to as we confess in the heidelberg deliver us from the tyranny of the devil the spirit is sent 
by the Father and the Son to dwell in Christ's people. So you have the full Trinitarian implication of it, illuminating the word to us, applying Christ's righteousness to us and sanctifying us. Even securing our salvation. Right. Even here in John 17, where you don't see the explicit mention of the Spirit from previous chapters, like in John 14, Christ has already spoken of that he would be sending the Spirit to bring these things to mind. But the Spirit is also implied here in John 17 in verses 11 to 19 in verse 21, 23, and 26. You see that Jesus says, this is verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Well, if he's no longer in the world, who's the one that's going to be protecting them? The one whom the Father and the Son sent, the Holy Spirit. The helper. Yeah, the helper. And he gives us the purpose so that they may be one as we are one. Who unites us to the ascended Son, the exalted Son in heaven? It's the Holy Spirit that unites us to him and brings us to be one with him and thereby being one with the Father. He continues, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. So now we have uh, the continuation of this protection that's going to come through the Spirit. We see in verse 13, he says that when he goes to the Father... Those who are in the world may still have the full measure of Christ's joy within them, and that joy is a spirit-wrought fruit. We see that my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Who continues to protect us and causes us to flee and contend with wickedness in the forces of darkness? It's the spirit. So you can continue going through this, you know, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Who sanctifies? Who brings the word to remembrance of the apostles and the disciples. That is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is abundant here implicitly in this chapter. And again, you can look at verses 21, 23, and 25 to continue considering these things. So those that might say uh, a weakness of the covenant of redemption, especially in John 17, is its omission of the Trinity, that it's basically just a description of two members of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son. Well, we need to look closer here in texts like this. We've begun to introduce this idea of the covenant of redemption. We have looked at the methodological issues and we've looked at one of these main texts with John 17. We do have more texts to look at for biblical evidence for this doctrine. And then, of course, some of Bob Inc.'s arguments and defenses in favor of the covenant of redemption. But for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and pause for now. And then we will return to this in our next episode. So we thank you for joining us for today's Bobcast. We hope you've learned something. We hope you've enjoyed it. You can, of course, always reach out to us with questions at bobcast at gmail.com or through our social media. And we'll be back next time with more on the Covenant of Redemption. It's true. But until then, as always, tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.